0: Thank you. All right. Well, yeah, my name is Jacob. I think it's been said like a thousand times so far, but yeah, if you would um, turn with me to Daniel chapter seven. Um, And while you're turning there, let me kind of set the stage for this passage a little bit. Okay. So Daniel is in this place in his life where he and his people, they're in exile. The Israelites are in captivity to Babylon. They're in the midst of the chaos of this world. And the question that he's asking, what he wants to know is, where is his life going? What's going to happen? The people are asking, is God still king through all all of this chaos? All right, so read with me. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 18. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold... The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first one was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth and between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold... There came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this, in this horn were the eyes like that of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning with fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Pray with me. Dear Lord, you're sovereign, you're in control. Nothing happens outside of your plan. Everything is under your throne and in your hands. I praise you for the immense power that you have and for the promises that you will work for the good of your people let us see the great truth that's in this passage. Lord, I ask that you'd please let your word be heard and understood tonight. And In your son's name I pray, amen. All right, what was the last nightmare that you had? Take a second and think about it. Do you remember the feeling of anxiety, maybe the, the fear or the terror that came with it? That nightmare probably involved something terrible happening to either you or someone you care about, your friends, family. And that's no different from what's happening here. Daniel here, he's afraid for himself and he's afraid for his people, the Israelites. Their nation has been destroyed and they're in captivity in Babylon. Um, And it seems pretty plausible that if the king wanted to, Belshazzar, that he could just kind of wipe out God's people if he so chose. Um, The future for God's people was looking pretty uncertain. And it's in this context that he has this dream. So what message does God send Daniel in this dream? God shows Daniel his plan, his power, and his sovereignty through their most difficult times. God's message to his people through this, uh, not only back then, but to you guys here today, us Christians, is that today, amidst our chaos, your king is in control. So let's look back at the text. Let's start in verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So the first thing Daniel sees in his vision is he sees uh, the wind, and he sees the seas, the ocean. Um, and in the Bible, the sea is an often used picture of instability, chaos, and uncertainty. Um, and here, <clears throat> it, it seems that it's a place that um, nothing is in control. Everything is out of control. And we see um, that, that nothing is in control over it, and um, it's being stirred up by the four winds, of heaven, and the number four here is pretty important too, um, because that's another frequently used image in the Bible. It's uh, it's a symbol of completion of totality. So the idea is that the wind and, and the chaos isn't just coming from like one direction in front of you or behind you; it's coming from everywhere. It is attacking from all directions. Um, so Daniel is totally surrounded by this chaos. So so picture for a second that you're like a 16th century sailor. I know we don't have a lot of experience with the ocean here in landlocked Oklahoma, but just imagine you're a sailor, you're a crossing the ocean, you're, you're, you're crossing the Atlantic Ocean. When you look around you, all you see is the open water. There's no land in, at any point in your sight. And you wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden, a great storm hits your boat. You're in the midst of that storm, you, you go outside and, and the waves are crashing over the front of your boat, they're, they're drenching you with water. Um, the waves are like 20 feet tall, they're just destroying everything around you. Um, the wind and the rain are, are so powerful. They're, they're completely soaking you. You can barely open your eyes. The wind and rain is so strong. You can barely take a step forward. The wind is hitting you so hard. And, and the boat rocks so much under your feet that you can't even take a step forward. Now, in that situation, do you have any control? Is there really anything you can do? No, there's absolutely no control that you have over anything that's happening around you. The chaos is everywhere. It's attacking from all directions. And it's in this kind of chaos that Daniel sees these beasts emerge from. But also don't miss this too here in verse 2. God's presence is here. The source of the wind, which is the source of, of the sea and the beast's power, it's from heaven, it's from God. So right even in this initial picture of chaos, we can still see that nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. Verse 3 says, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So once again here, the number 4 is important. It's, it's the same Image of completion here. So, with that point, oftentimes the main focus of, of commentators or readers when they go through this passage is to try to figure out what specific kingdoms that these beasts represent or find our place in this apocalyptic timeline that it gives us. And to be sure, that's where some of our focus. I mean, the angel speaking makes it clear that these are four real kingdoms that have existed. Um, but because of all the imagery and because of the focus of the book of Daniel, it would be wrong for us to um, simply look at that um, in terms of what it is, um, in terms of what nation specifically it is. Um, so we can't just associate each beast with just one kingdom, right? Again, four signifies completion and totality. These beasts are the total power that God's enemies has against, uh, has against him. It, it, all the force and power that God's enemies have against his people and his kingdom When we see nations strike out against God's people and violence or in law oppressing them, we're seeing the beasts reflected in them. There's a theologian named Ian Duguid, and he says, every world empire is a terrible manifestation of the beastish reality of our presence. They are a reflection of the greatest beast, Satan. So then in verses 4 through 6, they go through and describe the first three beasts. And look at how they're described. They're described as a mix of all these different kinds of animals they are are first a lion mixed with an eagle and then we have a bear a misshapen bear on its side and then a leopard with four heads and six wings of a bird right these are they're a combination they're an amalgamation of creatures they're not like any kinds of animals that we see today or that god created this is not how god intended creatures to be and likewise here as these beasts represent the kingdoms the kingdoms and nations that we see they're also a corruption of what the Lord intended when he gave man dominion over the earth. So nations like Babylon or America, China, Rome, none of these kingdoms truly do what God has, has told us to do when he told us to subdue the earth because they oppress, and, and, um, they oppress God's people in a variety of ways. Like when they invade other countries, they oppress their own people or, or kill their own people or other people. That's all just a reflection of the beastly nature um, that these nations represent. And while they've been given dominion for a time, like we see at the end of verse 6 there, there will come a time when God restores it back to how he intended. Okay, now let's look at verse 7 of the fourth beast. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts before it and it had 10 horns. So this fourth beast is so totally and utterly terrifying to Daniel that he can't even really describe it like this. He can't even put it in creation terms. The only things he can even note about it are the tools by which it's enacting its destruction and dominion. It, he notes his iron teeth, its feet, which he uses to stamp things out, and its horns. This beast is so utterly terrifying to Daniel This is the future that he fears for himself and his people. That's what this beast is representing. This fourth beast is the worst and most powerful oppressing kingdom and its king works completely against God's purposes. But not only that, this this beast, like I said, is also the fullness of what man and sin and death have to offer, right? Your anxiety for the future, the fear of the past, or your guilt of sins, or maybe a creeping dread of the thought that life is empty and meaningless, and maybe there isn't a God in control of anything. That's represented in this beast. Like I said, it's also a real kingdom. It's the most evil and abominable nations that have ever existed. Like Assyria, which was noted for its great brutality in the Bible, or even think about more recently the Nazi regime, right? These are represented in this beast. And as Daniel looks at the greatest part of this beast, the 10th horn, what he notes about it is that it has the mouth and the eyes of a man. So this actually is, a, is an antichrist picture. Um, you might have heard that, that phrase before, but this is, this is someone who is um, intentionally and fervently fighting against God and his people. Like we see in, in verse 25, um, this horn uses its eyes and mouth to perceptively speak out against God's people, and it oppresses them and causes a lot of people to stumble during his reign. This Antichrist is a real man. It, it's any man who uses his skill and his abilities to directly go against what God has said and uses all his power for it. So this beast and this horn have a time in which they succeed in their fight against God. Verse 21 says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So to borrow an illustration from Wilson, um, there's a time when God and his people are like the forces of the men in Helm's Deep and, and Lord of the Rings, the two towers. Right there, the wall has been breached and been blown up. There's enemies pouring through that. The gates and the outer walls have been climbed and stormed through. And, and the men are all huddled in the center, desperately holding out, uh, completely surrounded by the forces of evil. All hope for victory kind of seems lost in that moment. So when anxiety about you know, that test or that uncertain future, maybe what happens over the summer or after college, when that overwhelms you, or the fear <clears throat> grips your heart over failure and its consequences, or you're ridden with guilt or shame over some sin that you've committed, maybe the enemy assaults you with doubts and seeks to cause you to distrust God and his word. That's where this beast and this horn are prevailing for a time. So while this beast and all its power on the full display, all its terribleness, is in Daniel's center of view, this is where God is revealed to him. So look at verse 9. It starts with, as I looked. So this phrase, as I looked, isn't like we're cutting to in the movie scene where, like, you know, the music changes, the set changes, new characters... It's not that. It's the same stage. The beasts and the sea, they just fade to the background where God in all his grandeur comes to the center of the stage. So what takes Daniel's view? Verse 9 says, Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning with fire. So the Ancient of Days takes Daniel's view. In his greatest moment of fear, Daniel is shown through the chaos that his king is on the throne. This is actually the only place in scripture that um, this title for God is used. So why would Daniel use this title, the Ancient of Days, instead of another one that he and all the other Israelites would have been a lot more familiar with? Well, the answer to this kind of gives us uh, the central theme for this passage, and really for the book of Daniel. The name calls specifically to God's place in history. So... You can get a picture of that by looking at what the Ancient of Days is doing. Right? What is he doing? He says it, it took, he took his seat. <clears throat> the, the original language here is Aramaic, and the word translated took his seat is actually just one word. Um, and it's in the present perfect tense. And that's important because it means that God is seated. He didn't take power or conquer it or find it somewhere. He is on the throne. He always has, always will, and always is on the ultimate throne of power. So then look at what Daniel calls us to, to notice about him. He describes God's clothing as white as snow and his hair as white as pure wool. Both these terms are used to emphasize God's immeasurable holiness. God's completely unblemished, and he's perfect. And how comforting is that? It's contrasting the pure and unblemished God that we have to the beasts that came before it. They're described right before this. So instead of being ruled by the brutish and ruthless beasts that seek nothing but their own power, through whatever terrible means they can find, our God is on the throne. He's completely trustworthy. He's just, he's holy, and he's righteous. And then the fire of the Lord then fills Daniel's eyes. So he sees the fire of the Lord flow out from before him, like you see in verse 10, the stream of fire. And like a river of fire, this is the judgment that God has in store for his enemies. Because God is holy and perfect, the defiance that's sin and that the beasts revel in, it must be judged. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my spot. Hang on. Okay, yeah, sorry. This is a really interesting picture that Daniel gives us. Um, God is on the throne here, and it stands out from most others in the Old Testament. Because usually when God reveals himself, like in Isaiah 6 or uh, Moses on the mountain, right, he, he does so in a way that he's shrouded. There's either smoke, in, like in Isaiah, or he's in a cloud, like in the Transfiguration, or when Moses was on the, on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. This one is marked by striking clarity. Daniel gives us a really detailed picture of what God is doing and, and like what he kind of looks like. So on this, the same theologian Ian Duguid, he observes that this is to show us that as real as this world is around us and it's appeal to our physical senses and as real as sin and death is in our face, like we see it all around us, right? The world that God is and the reality that God is on the throne is just as real as that, it's just, it's just as real as you sitting in your chair right here. Everything around you, the air, you smell, you hear me talking, you feel the chair beneath you. That's pretty real. Just as real as that, is that God is on the throne. <clears throat> and Daniel is just giving us a vivid picture of it. Can you see the vivid scale, the, the immense scale of the, of the throne that's above the sea? I mean, it has to be absolutely grand in its size, right? I mean, you can, you can smell the flame and the smoke that he's describing. You can see the raging fire of God's holiness and the roar of the beast being drowned out by the shouts of the 10,000, the hundreds of thousands of people serving God. The reality that God is on the throne is just as real as the fact that the beasts have dominion now. Right? Through our chaos, God is in control. Our king is in control. So this is why Daniel calls attention to the title Ancient of Days. It's to give us an even better image of the scale of God's control. It's over all of history, all of time, and all of space. So let's look at the next section here at verse 11. Verse 11 says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So the vision of God's holiness and preeminence is directly followed with God's judgment. Like I said earlier, if God is holy and he is perfect, then there must be judgment for the sin. Sin and evil have no place in his kingdom. The beasts are evil, and they pervade the world with sin and death, especially through the false words that you see uh, verse 11 mentioned, and the horn using it. Um, The nations and their kings, they'll have to stand before the throne of God and answer for their actions. But also, don't be fooled with just thinking it's just the beasts. Anyone who's not in God's kingdom those who are not one of his saints, they'll have to stand before God on their own too. If we're not serving God's kingdom, then we're actually serving in the kingdom of sin and Satan, and we're just as bad off as the beasts. But if we are in God's kingdom, what great company news is that? I mean, sin and death, these beasts that rule over us now, they will not. They will not forever. But how? How is God going to judge, and how is he going to save his people? Well, right here we see in verse 13, Daniel must have been asking the same question. How could God save his people? Verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. This must have been kind of confusing for Daniel. How could this person, this man he sees, just like him, how could he approach God? The key is in how this person is described, what Daniel notes about him. He calls attention to this person's divinity and his humanity. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see that this person prophesied here is absolutely Jesus Christ. Actually, the the title Son of Man is the title that Jesus uses most commonly to refer to himself as. He uses it 69 different times in the the Gospels. Um, It's the use to emphasize his humanity. Jesus is just as human as you or I. His whole time on the earth showed that. And he's unlike the beasts, which are a terrible combination of God's creation Christ is in line with God's creation order, unlike what these beasts are. We also see that the Son of Man is divine. The first thing Daniel sees is him on the clouds, which, like I said before, is a pretty common way God reveals himself and shows his glory. Um, This figure is just as divine and just as holy as the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne before him. So what Daniel can see about this man is that he is divine and he's human. So we know this is how Jesus describes himself, too. He is God and man. He's clearly, man, every story and every description, every account of Jesus that that we have tells us that he interacted with and knew the world in the same way that every other person has. It's the same as you and me. But he's also divine. In John 14, 9, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And in verse 10, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So then Daniel sees what the Son of Man is doing. In the vision, he's being presented to the ancient of days. That word there is pretty important. In the original language, that word is used usually in a sacrificial context. It's quoted or used a couple of times in Ezekiel. um, And it's always used in the context of um, a priest approaching the altar. So Daniel here is getting a picture of Christ on the cross and of what his work accomplishes. Right here in in this passage, in this prophecy, Jesus is coming from slaying the great beast. <clears throat> on that day, on the, when Jesus was on the cross, the full force of evil was against him. Right? You have the most powerful nation, Rome, seeking to put him to death. And you have the forces of Satan attacking him with temptation while he on that cross, telling him to get off. His own people were persuaded to demand his death, and his disciples abandoned him in his greatest moment of need. And the full weight of sin was placed on his shoulders as he drank the Father's cup of wrath. Nowhere in history has the power of the beast been on greater display than when Jesus hung on that cross. So it's pretty funny that God used that to show just how much more powerful he is in these beasts. And that's why it's important that we know Christ is both God and man, because he lived a perfect life, a holy and blameless life. He is worthy to stand before God and represent us because of his humanity. And because he's God, he has the power to destroy the beasts. And that's what happened on the cross. Just like we celebrated last Sunday, when Jesus rose from the grave, Sin and death and Satan's power, they've all been cut down by Jesus. When Daniel sees the judgment of this great beast, he's seeing Jesus' work on the cross. So now when we follow Jesus' teaching to repent of our sins and to repent of our serving in, in the beast's kingdom of chaos, and we put our trust in his sacrifice, we can be totally assured that what his good and truthful word says will actually come to pass. So then in verse 14, Daniel sees God give him the kingdom. The ancient days have seen the man, and he's seen him as worthy. So verse 14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So he's given him all glory, all dominion, and all peoples. Nothing has been withheld from him. Like Christ says in, in Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So when we think about the kingdom of heaven, I don't think it's something that we put into its proper scale um, most of the time. It it is all-encompassing. Think of the greatest empire that's ever existed on earth. That would be the British Commonwealth. This empire was so massive, it controlled huge swaths of land on all six major continents. They ruled over millions and millions of people. It stretched over the entire globe you probably even heard the phrase that the sun never sets on the British Empire. For a long time, that was true. But Christ's kingdom is even more expansive than this. His dominion not only stretches over every continent on earth, but over every ocean and all the airspace that surrounds it and every person inside of it. And even more than that, when you look up in the sky and you see every planet, every star and every galaxy, that's all totally and completely in the dominion of Christ. And we also can't just think spatially too. Have you ever visited the British Empire? Probably not, because now it's just contained to these couple islands, these little islands in Europe. right? This empire has collapsed. It doesn't exist anymore. It's not in its greatest form. It might have been great and grand at one point, but it's not anymore. Christ's kingdom, in contrast, is forever, for all of eternity. His kingdom will never collapse, and it will never be destroyed. Our ultimate future as Christians is a place that is completely ruled by God in every sense of that word. That's what we have to look forward to, right? And not only that, he's on the throne right now. We will have the fullness of the kingdom later on, but right now God is on the throne too. So while Christ is on the throne now, we can definitely still see there is an element or a feeling that his work has not been fully finished here. This passage is not fully finished. We can see clearly that the beasts and, and sin and death and Satan, they've still got some power right? Every oppressing nation or act of violence, expression of sin, that's all part of the reality um, that we still live in a time under the beast's dominion. Even just think about the nightmare that I asked you to think about earlier, right? The effects of the beasts and sin are still present. Think about it like this. When you wake up tomorrow and you go outside, you can look at the time of season it is, right? It's early spring. Some of the trees have their leaves. Some of the grass has started to come back again and some of the bushes and trees might be flowering. But it's not as beautiful as it will be, right? When spring is at its height, every tree is going to have its, its deeply colored leaves. All the flowers will be in their full broom, the grass is thick, and the air will be swimming with a bunch of different great smells. That kind of breaks down because that also brings a lot of allergies too, but the, the point is that we're now in a place where it is prettier than it was when it was in the dead of winter with all the, the gross-looking trees around here. But it's not as pretty as it's going to be in a month or so, right? So just like that, Christ has won the biggest battle on the cross, but there's still more to be conquered. And there will come a day that what this passage describes here is fully realized when Christ returns and the earth and his people are consummated to him. And verse 14, like, like a... <clears throat> I didn't say that, but it has its emphasis in the, uh, in the eternality of Christ's kingdom, the beauty and awesomeness of his kingdom, it won't fade like the trees of, of our springtime. It'll last forever and ever. So even though we feel and, and we see the experience of the chaos of the dominion of the beast now, there is going to come a day when, <clears throat> when they'll all be like the fourth beast and be totally destroyed in the fire. We can be assured that through this chaos in our lives right now, that our king is in control. So finally, let's look at Daniel's response. Verse 15 says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So even though Daniel had just seen this vision of the reality that the beast will be destroyed and that God will put a perfect king over him and his people, he's still nervous and anxious, and he's alarmed at what he saw. He doesn't really understand what's happening. And I mean, who can blame him? I mean, when we first read through this passage earlier, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening here. It's kind of wild. I definitely was uh, pretty confused when I first read through it. Um, and we probably should be, right? If you don't have the context of what, we, of what I've just been talking about, it probably should be. Well, what does the animal do with this fear, with this anxiety? In the next verse we see, he approaches an angel, someone who knows what's going on, and, and, and asks that he might have it explained to him. And in verse 17, he does. The angel says, These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So the angel's response to him is to give him the truth and to show him how he can take hope in it. He's basically saying that, yeah, the the beasts and um, this kingdom is not great right now, right? But eventually, God is going to take them away, and your people will be given the kingdom. And also, take special note of this. The angel doesn't say that the kingdom will be given to the Son of Man, which the previous two verses spend a lot of time emphasizing. He says it will be given to the saints of the Most High. This isn't a contradiction. This is just further explaining what Christ's kingdom is going to look like. So just to be clear, the saints here are the people of God. They're the true Israelites, and they're us Christians today. What the angel is saying is that we'll share entirely in what the Ancient of Days has given to the Son of Man. Like Paul says in, in Romans 8:17, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So everything that Christ has, we will have. This whole kingdom, all its glory, its grandeur and expansiveness, Christ will share with us. And once again, the, the emphasis is the same here. It's on the everlasting nature of His kingdom. The end of verse 18 says, forever, forever and ever. We always want to take note when the Bible has any kind of repetition, and especially if it's a triple kind of repetition. Right? This is the only place in the chapter we see this, right? I say I extra emphasis on the eternality of God's kingdom. As long as this life feels and as long as the dominion of the beast feels, right? And it feels long, right? This is the only thing that we know. The kingdom of the ancient days, which we're heirs in, will be so much longer. To try to give that a little bit of scale. um, Y'all used to play with Legos, right? It was a pretty common thing. You You remember putting together little Lego houses, right? You put your little guy in there, you know, it's just this little cute house, right? imagine you put it on the floor of the Biltmore Estates. It's the the most beautiful, greatest house in in all of America, right? You can look up and see the 50 high-foot ceilings, the big chandelier in it. You can look behind you and see the 500-foot-long, massive hallway. Or maybe to your right, and you can see the huge 2,000-square-foot garden, right? That little Lego house doesn't even register on the same scale as as the enormous work of beauty that that mansion is, right? We can't even really comprehend them together really and just like that we can't really see how long forever is but that's what's promised to us but even after this reassurance daniel is still anxious and nervous about what's to come you can look at verse 28 at the end of the chapter but the reality is for him and for us that we're still under some of the beast's power and we will be until christ returns and we're all fully consummated and the world is made to be in its full glory the horn will wage war Against the saints, and he will prevail for a time, like verse twenty-one says. But God will come and judge the beast; he will destroy sin and death, and Satan completely, and all those who stand against him. Every wrong will be made right. So just like those men in Helm's Deep, who had basically no hope, everything was lost. They looked up and they saw Gandalf come down that mountain with those huge army and destroy the forces of evil. Just like that, we can look up and see our Savior come, and know that there will be complete and total victory. The ancient of days will be brought to the center of the stage. and <clears throat> Jesus Christ, his son, he will ascend the throne and he'll rule forever and ever. Every nightmare that we have, the pain and suffering, all the anxious moments, the expressions of sin, maybe an experience of death or an oppression from Satan and his workers, all of that will be made right in the end. The seas, they will be calmed. And the uncertainty will cease. We can take hope, Christians. There is still chaos today, but our king is in control. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that the truth of your sovereignty and your control over all um, would be the center of our worship for you. Let the work of your son and the hope that we can have from it fill our hearts and fill our minds. Let us worship you for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, while the beasts and Satan do still oppress your people now, they won't always. You will keep your word, you will judge them, and you'll restore your people. I ask that those of us who do trust in you will be strengthened in it, and that those who do not see your great work of Christ on that cross, see that he can take their judgment, and, he can in- and they can enter your kingdom, Lord. I pray you'd continue to move our hearts towards you through this worship, God. And it's here in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen.